Okay, guys, so uh, welcome everybody who's watching this on our playback in the future. And I know we have Kevin and Becky here. Others will probably join us. But uh, I, by the way, you, you can see I'm on the, on the road in a hotel room. And uh, I just wanted to get this in because it's our second one of the year. And I did not want travel to impede that flow of just creating that habit of getting back in here and going through some of the most applicable science to both our nutrition and health coaches, as well as our clients. Uh, more and more people are funneling into our library of information. And this, to me, is the tip of the spear. This is where I send most people for information because it's just the densest, most highly cited, and I try to make it applicable information we provide. So the science of childhood and adolescent obesity, this I'm going to call part one, and it's going to be more narrative driven, pretty introductory. And then even though there are, as you'll see, just dozens and dozens of tangents we can go through, what I really want to focus on just in perhaps these two parts are uh, are just, the, like I said, the highlighting of the reasons why I think this is important for everybody whether you have young children or not. Uh, there are certainly a lot of cultural implications, socioeconomic, especially when healthcare is such a dominant part of our um, you know, national costs as a country. But the American Academy of Pediatrics just this week took the bold step after 25 years since obesity in general was named for the first time a chronic disease now this uh, pediatric academy has decided we, we better update our guidelines. We need to make sure that our physicians actually have something in place so they can practice uh, and stem this tide. Uh, as you're going to see, there are things that have been getting worse for 50 or more years. And gosh, I, I almost want to say every decade or so, where every time a new study comes out, I, I want to think that's that's it. Like that's the worst it can get. And we seem to not be finding that bottom yet. So I, I'm I'm extremely happy in, in most ways, but there are a couple considerations to think through, uh, perhaps to disagree with when it comes to how the American Academy of Pediatrics is going to roll this out. Some of that remains yet to be seen. It's going to take a long time, I'm sure, for hospital systems, physicians groups, and everybody else to decide what are we going to do with this. But let, let's get into some of the reasons why they did this. And by the way, this is one reason I'm excited about this. When I did my doctorate in health education, I was torn between a couple topics that I was really, really interested in at the time. And I actually started doing research in one direction and in, in a more general health micronutrition um, tangent. And I decided I, I want to do something that's going to be most useful. Uh, and at the time, 2006, I think I wrote this, uh, I had four small children. And so this was kind of a topic of ours. How do we, how do we raise kids with a, a health consciousness without being overbearing as parents? Uh, you don't want to create the environment to, to put too much pressure on kids. And we, we know that's how you create the fastest track to eating disorders and so forth. But this is something I put a lot of thought and research into, wrote a 145-page dissertation in the form of a literature review. Uh, now that's almost 20 years ago. 
And I'm going to bring up some of that because it's more of the practical application of what the American Academy of Pediatrics is wading into now. But I do apologize. I'm going to read some of this, but I think it's really, really, really important to see exactly in their words why and how they plan on doing this. Uh, because I think there's going to be a lot of controversy and there are going to be some people who just don't like this. And, and I want to try and dissuade some of that, that negative energy and fear. You have in your hands or at your fingertips the first edition of the American Academy of Pediatrics Clinical Practice Guideline for Evaluation and Management of Children and Adolescents with Overweight and Obesity. Putting together this guideline was no small task, and the Academy is grateful to the efforts of all the professionals who contributed to the production of this document. This work is a true testament to their passion and dedication to combating childhood and adolescent overweight and obesity. Then they talk about uh, how much diversity there was in the subcommittees and so forth. Um, but don't think this was just a glib decision or a political thing to say, hey, we should probably pretend we're doing something over here. When you do something like that, it's a major, major deal. The Surgeon General in 2001 commissioned a massive committee study that took two or three years to create and investigate and then publish. And, and that's, that was the, the main component of my dissertation that I'll get into. But the current long-term health of 14.4 million children and adolescents is affected by obesity, making it one of the most common pediatric chronic diseases, long stigmatized as a reversible consequence of personal choices. Obesity has a complex genetic, physiologic, socioeconomic, and environmental contributor, contributors. As the environment has become increasingly obesogenic, access to evidence-based treatment has become more crucial. Now, this is, this is where I think people will start to divide into groups. Um, listen, look, look at some of this language word by word. They call it a chronic disease. And that's part of this new position they're taking. And, you know, in alignment with the NIH and, and um, Centers for Disease Control and so forth, the United States government, the D Department of Health and Human Services. You know, once we made that move 25 years ago, that alone was controversial. Now with the with pediatricians in mass getting on board to create guidelines to do something about it, here's where the split is going to be that polarizes people. That second sentence, long stigmatized as a reversible consequence of personal choices, obesity has complex genetic, physiologic, socioeconomic, and environmental contributors. If you think just being overweight is only your personal fault, you're failing because you you can't control your appetite and so forth, you you are woefully not even in the conversation yet. And I don't want to be mean or political or divisive in this, but you you have to get over that hurdle, at least in a sense of curiosity and wanting to see why the entire medical establishment disagrees with you. Um, I'm, I, I, ha I have a certain display of genetics here from the time I was conceived to now, here I am. Why can't I be in the NBA or the NFL? What if I just worked a little harder? What if I just learned to jump a little higher, move a little faster? Why can't I be a power forward in the NBA? If it was just my personal choice, I could do that. There are so many genetic, and I'm talking down to this tiny genetic expression, epigenetics and so forth, what, that express themselves in hunger, hunger cues, things like that. 
I mean, this is what I do as a health scientist that my, my, my field of study into the physical nature of health and biology. Trust me, you will never win that argument that everything is just a personal choice and that it's all behaviorism. Then you layer in things like the physiology that can change. Uh, you continuing to use myself as an example, I'm hypothyroid. I have to take 50 micrograms of levothyroxine every day. That's a genetic and environmental change in my body that makes my physiology different. Um, socioeconomics, food deserts. Uh, you know, I'm also a kid who grew up living in trailers, eating government cheese and ketchup sandwiches on white bread with bologna if we had the money to get bologna. Uh, all I drank my entire childhood was Kool-Aid, you know, with, with a cup of sugar, you know, in each pitcher. Tell me that socioeconomics and food availability don't have uh, vast implication in your long-term health. So, like I said, I want to get some of that stuff out of the way. Uh, don't mean to be divisive, but if you if you think that no effort, no policy position, and no funding, no energy should go toward looking at this as an actual disease, then you just need a lot of information in terms of what creates society and civic structure, because it affects everybody. You know, every one of our collective choices combined you know, creates exactly the society that we're going to live in. And even outside of the realm of just funding, like insurance premium costs, medical costs, and so forth, we're talking about one person who may have some of those layered challenges, culturally, personally, socioeconomically, genetically, and then other people may have other ones. It could be mental health for you. It could be access to educational opportunity. It could, you know, it could be just about anything. We all have places that we have high and low expectations and opportunities, skills, traits, genetic propensities. So just put all that aside for a minute and, and look at each individual child, even if they don't, even if they do have the wherewithal intellectually and in their behavioral makeup to do the hard work, because I'm also not putting aside personal responsibility. I'm arguing one side of the coin right now. I will hit that other side coming up. Uh, but every child still doesn't have that, that unique set of, of opportunities. And, and I was just saying the other day to a client, he, he was asking, a brand new client was asking me about my personal health history. And I told him about growing up and, you know, my, you know, my whole family is obese and everybody smokes and everybody dies of heart disease in their 60s. Um, and my entire family just had no health values expressed. And I just got lucky that in the fifth grade, I moved to a new school and a, and a very extroverted kid said, hey, why don't you, you know, be on my team at recess on the kickball team or on the kickball game. And then, you know, hey, why don't you come out for the baseball team? Why don't you come out for the football team, the basketball team? And this single influence in my life changed the entire quality and trajectory of my life. Had I not met that one kid, I could be exactly like my siblings. I could be just like, you know, my, my recent ancestors in modern American history. Uh, but I got lucky. I got lucky. You know, that had nothing to do with me. And we have to provide opportunities like that for everybody. It only helps everybody in the entire country moving forward.
All right, so I'll get off of that soapbox and let's dig into this. Uh, this is the American Academy of Pediatrics first clinical practice guideline outlining evidence-based evaluation treatment of children and adolescents with overweight and obesity. This is what I wanted to really point out here. This guideline does not cover the prevention of obesity, which is why I do want to talk about that a little bit later. That will be forthcoming in a policy statement. So they intentionally are not saying, here's how we prevent this. This is just how doctors can treat it now. Looking at patients coming in the door, almost if this is truly an epidemic, let's treat it as we need to triage the people who need the most help first. Uh, and then I just, you know, I just went on all this with, with health inequalities and so forth and stigmatism. I'm not going to read that again. Um, this is an important one. Individuals with overweight and obesity experience weight stigma, victimization, teasing, and bullying, which contribute to binge eating, social isolation, avoidance of healthcare services, and decreased physical activity. I've got a slide coming up where I just list a smattering of research studies showing the psychosocial effects of obesity. And, and I was, I, I went through that. I was a fat little chubby kid and I know what it's like to literally be picked last in gym class every time. That's how I grew up. Every single time I just sat on the back of the wall, just waiting, 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 waiting for everybody else to be picked and to see who got stuck with Joe. I mean, that's devastating. And, and yet kids, and when I say to no fault of their own, you, you truly, if you have not raised children from birth to adulthood, and maybe if you have, and you just kind of missed it, but kids are not just small adults. They are kids. When they're two years old, four years old, 12 years old, they do not have the mental and intellectual framework and capacity to think like us. Uh, even though we try and, and you, you know, hopefully great parents are great parents and they help kids through some of those things. We all have our sticking points socially, but man, this is a big one for kids. And this just further isolates them, creates depression, anxiety. As this statement says, it moves them outside of the realm of healthcare and, and it just makes matters worse. So uh, just another lighthouse, perhaps metaphor in the darkness to say that something needs to be done. These kids have to be addressed and not ignored. Adverse childhood experiences are negative experiences caused by situations and events and lives and blah, 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 blah. So we talked about that. I'm not going to repeat that. Uh, the recommendations in the CPG, which is their, their um, you know, whole position here, are child-centric and not specific to a particular healthcare setting and are written to inform pediatricians and other primary healthcare physicians about a standard of care for evaluating and treating children with overweight and obesity-related comorbidities. So again, the whole purpose of this position paper and guideline announcement is to say that you primary care physicians and you pediatricians, it's on you now. This is now tasked to you. When children come in, you need to start monitoring and looking at biomarkers for health that include obesity and overweightness. And you need to start creating whatever kind of systems and programs and counseling that you need. You need to treat it like you would any other chronic disease. This is a disease state that will only magnify and continue if you don't do something to rectify that. And uh, it, it's beyond today's chat to talk about all the ways, except uh, I do want you to know, and I think I have a slide coming up here, that they are very, very specifically looking to do more 
uh, training and so forth. I think it was on this last one here. Um, so yeah, evaluation, um, counseling, things like that to be very behavior based is where they want to start. That's obviously the easiest and most primary place to begin, but they are not ruling out even bariatric surgery, which is like, whoa, like, how is that going to work? And do we have any case study precedents? Do we have any, any data on that? Has this been done? Have other countries done it? You know, that's, that's a big step as well as pharmacological approaches. Um, and, and those are the things that I obviously worry about most, but we just, you know, we have to see they're, they're just rolling this out. And I mentioned in my post announcing this session today, that this truly does mark the uh, us embarking on a brand new social experiment with kids. You know, just like when we took all the kids out of school for uh, COVID and we thought, oh, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be good. This, you know, socialization, education scores, we knew it wasn't going to be good. Now we're getting the data back and it's awful. It's probably worse than anybody even anticipated. So I think is great as some of this is, there could be some missteps and misapplications here. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's going to be all good, but those are the things that I'm certainly watching for. Um, but again, understanding the underlying genetic, biologic, environmental, social determinants that pose risk for obesity is the bedrock of all evaluation and, and intervention, allowing the family to have a safe place to understand and process the complexity of obesity and its chronicity requires tact, empathy, and humility. Achieving this goal enables the patients and family to gain the knowledge and understanding needed to recognize risk factors in their environment behaviors, to honor cultural preferences, and to institute changes independently, as well as under the guidance of trusted, well-trained advocates, such as their pediatrician. Wow. That's, that's what I mean by this is not just a glib political exercise. They now want physicians, pediatricians, primary care doctors who are taking care of families to not only look at this as the epidemic it is, but create a safe space to understand the process and complexity with tact, empathy, humility, uh, achieving this goal allows the patient and family to gain the knowledge and understand the necessary or understanding needed to recognize risk factors, including environmental and behavioral. They are asking the medical community to jump in and do this. You know, it's not going to happen. Some doctors are amazing. Some doctors will take it very, very seriously. One of their asks is that Physicians, groups, and systems create a way for this to happen. It may not happen right there in the office, but as a physician doing a normal wellness check, is checking those biomarkers and so forth. If he says, okay, hang on a second, you know, Mrs. Smith, little Johnny here, we, there are some trends we need to talk about. Like, let's set up another appointment and I'm going to bring in our registered dietitian or our nutrition coach or something like this. I, I think we need to engage in this particular program that we've designed to help families do this, do this. We want to create this space for education and goal change and, and uh, goal process attainment. I'm telling you, parents would love this. Parents feel stuck in pushing too hard with their children, uh, you know, trying to tell kids, hey, you, you know, that's your third cookie. Shouldn't we slow down a little bit? or creating hard, rigid rules, smacking them, saying, you know, you can't eat that. Uh, I know I know kids whose parents berate them 
you know, who literally call them names, you know, like they're getting bullied at school and now they're getting bullied at home. Physicians are, as I said, being tasked with some big, big asks in this. And I really hope that they they stand up and, and take charge. So finally, to emphasize the importance of goal of important goals of treatment, both improve weight status and reduction or elimination of comorbidities, the subcommittee uses the term intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment. I love this. If I could highlight, I need to learn how to highlight on PowerPoint. This is one of the things I would do right here. Um, look, look what they've decided not to call this, it, you know, intentionally. Um, they said rather than calling it behavioral modification or weight management. Uh, this is an interesting nuance because on one hand, they're classifying this as a chronic disease. Chronic diseases need to be treated and managed. Yet they know, again, with tact, humility, and empathy, that in order to sell this appropriately in that safe space and create a team orientation for families and kids together, parents and kids together, we're going to call it health behavior and lifestyle treatment. You know, it, it, and that's not just modification, which is a psych term. Oh, there's something wrong with your head. We need to modify your behavior. It's your choices and you're, you're a bad, bad person. You can't, you can't express willpower or control. This is treatment like you would treat anything else. Such, such a good move on their part. Um, so I, I hope, I hope you see the value in that. They, they spent a little bit of time in this summary, even talking about linguistics and the importance of that. So let me let me speed up a little bit and talk about again why would they even do this? Why would the AMA sanction this? Why would the AAP decide it's just dire? We have to do something. Community, you know, first of all, calling it chronic and calling it a disease. I, I put that slash in there on purpose. Uh, community self management, delivery system design, decision support, clinical information systems. You don't create an entire orbit of of collaborative integrated treatment unless you can distinctly classify something as a big problem. Um, you know, broken arms, kids fall out of trees, broken arms. That, that's a six week cast kind of deal. It's pretty cut and dry. You, you do an x-ray, you put them in a cast, um, you know, hopefully they don't need, you know, some kind of a, a you know, external device surgery, but that's easy. This has long-term, lifelong implications in multi-systemic comorbidities, uh, as well as the psychosocial impact. So for them to say, if we put this in the medical system as a reclassified chronic disease, we can create these entire systems around it. And hopefully, like we did polio and things like that, we can do something about it. We can truly work toward an eradication or, or, or that much modification. Uh, we also know if somebody's overweight or obese, it's typically going to be at least a year. And that's a, one definition of chronicity when it comes to illness. Uh, it requires ongoing medical attention, which again is the opposite of what I just talked about, a, a broken arm. Uh, it requires comprehensive, intensive, longitudinal home treatment. And this is where the people who are a little skeptical about this, you should be happy. Longitudinal means long-term. Home treatment means you are doing stuff at home. Doctors are giving you homework to do with your kids and you're you're going home making these 
these changes, which are, quote, treatment, and you're working on it together as a family. Uh, we know, again, that there are psychological as well as physical comorbidities. Uh, they're even identifying and addressing some of those social drivers that we talked about, which makes me very happy. Uh, there's a lot of collaboration and integration, as I discussed, and there's tailored treatment to the individual. None of this can occur if you don't have this kind of classification, which is why it was such a big deal they did that this week. If it's if it if they didn't do that, it's just one kid at a time going to their doctor. Doctor brushes it off. It's not a big deal. I've got sixty other patients today who are battling infections, and I'm looking for horrible things like bacterial meningitis and this and that. And Johnny's just a little overweight. You know, I don't have time for that. That's that's how we got to this position. Uh, without the medical community being really involved. So as I said, this really does change everything if people will participate, meaning the pediatricians. So another thing, um, treatment as chronic disease. This is, this is just a graphic representation they had in their paper that really does show the collaborative and the, the longitudinal trajectory of treatment here. So it, it really just does create that kind of not, not just label or tag, but that label and that categorization is what prompts all of this stuff to take place. So some of these questions, if we're going to classify this now as chronic disease, what do we have to do to get ready? How do we get people on the same page? First of all, we already define being overweight. If you are greater than 85% body mass index of your peers. So gender, age, height, et cetera. And you're obese if you're above 95%. Now, there is some subjectivity to that. Um, both because it's relative, it's intrinsically relative, it's compared to your peers, but they also have these standards that have, for that reason, stood the test of time. That they haven't just kept creeping it up, creeping it up, creeping it up and saying that, well, if 12% body fat was acceptable in 1930, and now we're going to move that up to 60, as long as you're not over 60%, you're okay. That's, that's, you know, you know, Dairy Queens right on the corner. We understand we're going to, we're going to ease back those, those guidelines. They're not doing that, but still some people, when I posted this instantly talked about this how subjective it is, and therefore you can't do it. It's just done. Well, physicians, one at a time, going back to that word, tailoring somebody's approach, that's why you have the relationship. That's why you have a physician. That's why the physician can look at you and look at all the biomarkers, the health uh, measurements and say, yeah, you know, maybe we need to do this. Maybe not. Maybe it's just something we watch. Maybe it's something that needs critical care right now. Uh, who's going to do this? Like I said, do pediatricians have the time? Do they have to create a specialization within their field? Do other healthcare providers have to come in and be part of a team? All of the above. I mean, yes, it's a big deal. Let's let's decide how best this can be operated. This, this almost gets, gets into business management. How do we achieve this goal in the best way possible? The extra caveat, which was Kevin's first comment, was, yeah, let's see what insurance companies are going to do. Because if you can't fund things like this, it's you're just not going to do it. So how are we going to do this? We already know how much money these kinds of things cost us as a society. 
So it reminds me of Sweden. Uh, there's a book uh, a journalist wrote called Chasing the Scream. And here's, here's one more bit of evidence for anybody who is still skeptical. Um, I, I don't want to get any of these major pieces wrong, so please fact check me. But Sweden decided that they had a heroin epidemic on par with ours. Matter of fact, we had, I think, 70, 80, no, I think it was 100,000 people last year die of heroin overdoses. Per capita, Sweden was the same. So how do you how do you how do you deal with that? What's the the issues? What are the issues? And they thought, well, first of all, it's not just people dying of heroin. The crime rate's going through the roof because now people are creating theft and robbery and violent crime to steal money to get heroin. Um, let's think of this not through a political lens or even a value orientation, but how do we just solve the problem? So here's what they did. They didn't just decriminalize heroin. They took taxpayers' dollars and they set up heroin clinics. And they said, hey, everybody, anybody who wants heroin, come on in. You get medical-grade heroin for free in our country. We're giving it away. We just decriminalize it. We are giving it away. Stick your arm out. We're going to put heroin right in your vein. Tragic, right? Horrible. Who would do that? Instantly... Crime went to zero. Zero. There were no more drug dealers selling heroin because you go get it for free. And they realized, wait a second. Nobody actually wants to be a heroin addict. We've got doctors and lawyers and teachers coming in here saying, um, yeah, I got a problem. I really want some help. They didn't come in just for a heroin fix. They said, now that I can get it for free here... And in, in a situation where they had counselors, they had job counselors, they had all this social structure, what they found is people started taking a little less, a little less, a little less, and they weaned themselves off. Guess how many deaths due to heroin they had one year later? We had 100,000 in our country last year. Per capita, they were the same. Guess what it went down to in one year? Zero. Zero. Because they addressed the problem. They didn't think, oh, that's a sin. That's illegal. That's bad. Why are they doing that? You can't take my taxpayer dollars and give it to these people doing drugs. Well, what if that eliminates all the problem in your entire country? So for us to treat this the same way, to say this is, I don't care who's at fault. There's all kinds of layers of socioeconomic reasons and genetic and all these things, social, TikTok, everything else. Everything contributes to this. Forget all that. Let's just deal with the problem. Let's help these kids. Let's spend the money on the counseling, on the treatment. If they need pharmacological assistance right now, let's put our money there so we can prevent this. So we're not spending 10 times more money down the road with all kinds of ill health and, and social um, you know, pain. So again, think very proactively at trying to assess a problem here. And that's why payment and reimbursement is a big deal. We're going to have to fund something like this, but if you do it properly, you will more than make that money up. So again, and then how are we going to deliver all this care? These are big, big, big deals that now start today with this, with this organizational change. Um, and we don't know. We don't know what they're going to do with it. 
they may just drop the ball and it does just become a piece of paper that goes away because nobody will pay for it. Nobody will address it. Who knows? But I, I really, really hope something happens. And if nothing else, even if it takes a generation or two or 25 years, like the original classification of obesity as chronic disease until something gets going, um, at least maybe the the PSAs and the dialogue, all of those things can help parents do something about it now. Certainly some physicians will. So this whole process of the American Academy of Pediatricians, every aspect of every possible diagnostic and treatment option was reviewed by the committee and subcommittees before reaching the conclusion to classify an approach as a chronic disease. The full paper is available online. You guys can look at it. Um, this was the whole why part of the conversation and what the AAP did. Uh, they even said they weren't going to talk about prevention now. They're going to do that later, but I want to talk about it now. And next week, if we do a research review, I want to talk about the how part because they do have in the same paper, we're just not getting to it today, exactly how they want pediatricians to deal with this, including the options for bariatric surgery, inpatient work, um, just like you would for depression, suicide, that kind of thing. Um, as well as pharmacological agents. So let's look at the uh, the prevention part. Uh, this is where my dissertation came in when I wrote this. Um, and I can't remember what my mindset was being so bold to call it solving the childhood obesity epidemic. Um, obviously, I think that was kind of a pun that you never really solve something like that. But if you were going to use that as a goal, and you actually had the means to do it, would you actually do it? Could you do it? So the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy's Prevention Focus Plan was commissioned in 2001 by Surgeon General David Satcher. They spent two years doing this, another couple of years to publish it, 19-member multidisciplinary committee. Here's, here, here are the findings of that. And, and this is just a brief survey. Like I said, I have a 145-page dissertation, and that's woefully inadequate. Those are just the highlights. But they said, if we're going to do this, if we're going to look at our society, our nation, our culture, our medical system, and actually change something, how would we do it? They said, first of all, after two years of study in every field of medicine, psych, social, everything they could get their hands into... They said, first of all, it has to be child-centered. You have to look at that individual child as somebody who needs help. This is before it was classified as a chronic disease, but they were already looking in that direction. They said the first layer is the family in the home. We have to make sure we're equipping parents and kids with the resources and the information to make change at home. Then it goes out in the next layer to school and peers, then the community, local community, then industry and government, and then culture and society at large. And, and they, after all of that study, and again, you're, you're talking when, when Congress commissions a study like this, it, it ends up sometimes being 100,000 or a million pages. And then you synthesize it down to an abstract or a report. They presented their findings to Congress as 10 recommendations. And in these 10 recommendations, which is what my book was all about, is, is all of the steps that it would take to actually do that. So let's go through those really, really quickly here. Number one, you have to make it a national priority, which is what the AAP did this week. We're taking it on. 
uh, Department of Health and Human Services has to take a lead role. Uh, this has to be prevention focused. It has to be layered uh, in its coordination. There has to be deep monitoring and reporting. We have to have correct data and stats. Uh, it has to, there has to be physical activity uh, as a driver. We have to target or spend more attention on high-risk populations. And besides just information, there has to be behavioral and environmental approaches. Those will come up in a little bit. But that's making it a national priority. And, you know, I'm I'm old enough, as you guys know, that, you know, growing up without the Internet, without video games, without social media, without smartphones, you had three TV channels. And there that was a time when public service announcements really worked better. I mean, you used to get 50 million people watching the same nightly news every night, and it was information driven. And when things, you know, with just health could be polio, could be, you know, Nancy Reagan's just say no to drugs kind of campaign, um, you know, go to school, get an education, make something of yourself, you know, all those positive things. All kids don't get things like that at home. So there is a place for private sector and government leadership in directing positive cultural change. But if you don't ever make it a national priority like this, and I know everybody hates the word bureaucracy and it's just more money and more funding and it's wasteful and all this stuff. True, those potentials are there. But if you don't take that step, you'll never know. You'll never be like Sweden who eradicated a massive problem and saved their country so much pain, suffering, and death. Uh, number two, as a recommendation, the industry, the food and beverage and packaging industry has to be transparent and honest. Some of these things have happened a lot because this is this is 20 years ago. The leisure, entertainment, recreation industry has to promote activities. Think of NFL Play 60. I mean, they've been hammering that nail for probably a decade now. And those things matter because they not only have those PSAs during commercial breaks and so forth, their players go out in their communities and they do this. Uh, when I had a my final bodybuilding event that I hosted in my town, I made it an entire event between the pre-judging and the night show back before you know we did live judging, where we had an entire kids fitness fair. I had a Hollywood actor come out to promote this. We had our local news agencies. We had kids playing wiffle ball. We had kids timing themselves with races and you know seeing how high they could jump like a college athlete on the vertical jump pole. We had all kinds of things just to show kids that physical fitness can be fun. We need leadership at the governmental levels, the private sector level, the local level to do things like that, including you know some of these industries, leisure, entertainment, recreation. Restaurant point of purchase information and healthier options. Uh, our city got a grant one time, like a $3 million grant, and one of our foundations created this obesity uh, initiative, and they wanted me to be on the board. And they they ended up doing this thing called Upgrade. That was the whole thing. And there are still plaques all around town. You can walk around and it's like a little street sign. It says Upgrade. You know, just drink one extra glass of water today or, you know, take the stairs. Just, you know, just one little idea like that. One of the things that we did, this was my idea, was can we get point of purchase information in our high school cafeterias? Hey, did you know when you eat this slice of pizza, this is how many macros? It, we had table tents set up. If you eat this, 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 and this, this is how many miles you'd have to run to burn those calories. 
we actually ask them to put things like the ice cream treat, things like that on the other side, you know, put the fruit and the salad and those things first. All of that had tremendous success. Do you know how much so? The schools complained that they were losing money because the kids stopped buying so much shitty food. So they stopped it. How's that? How's that? You go in there, you, you, you find out you can make a change like this. And then because of funding priorities, they say, oh, no, we need we need that money. We're not getting the education money we need from uh, tax revenue or the state or the federal government. We got to get it from those kids buying Snickers bars like holy fucking shit. If that's your priority as a school or a, a, a city, like it's over. It's over. Just give up. Throw your kids off the cliff. Just, just let them die of obesity and all those health-related diseases. If you want to do something proactive and good, it is going to take change. It is going to take people who say, I don't care if you lose money. This is what has to be done. It's not about money. It's about our kids' health. Recommendation number three, nutrition labeling. This has changed a lot over the years. Um but fact panel upgrades, label claims and warnings, consumer research increase. I mean, all of those things actually have improved quite a bit. Number four, advertising marketing direct, again, Department of Health and Human Service oversight and guideline uh, changes regarding product placement, as I just mentioned, promotion content, the Federal Trade Commission to actually be resourced to monitor compliance. When you get into um, like the USDA, the other regulatory agencies, that have the teeth to monitor label claims and so forth, it just doesn't happen. Last time I checked those stats, something like 0. 0.000 something percent of food companies ever get inspected or their label claims monitored, that kind of thing. Basically, these agencies are just there. If there's an E. coli outbreak or something, like, boom, we better go check stuff out. But they're not doing things like this that could really help. Uh, number five, multimedia and public relations campaigns, coordinated policy creation, information preparation. When I wrote my dissertation at the time, this was before social media. I mean, I think Facebook was just coming out. Something, it was either 84 or 86% of Saturday morning cartoons, because that was still a thing, <laughs> again, before social media. Uh, 84, 86% of, of all commercials targeted toward kids were just sugar, 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 sugar. Um, and again, it, it matters. It changes. You know, I, I now have two grandkids. My grandson is two years old. And very weirdly, it's so different as a grandparent compared to when you're a parent. I think just because of time and experience, like you're you're just trying to survive your first round with your kids and you're in your 20s, 30s, trying to figure it all out. Now with the kind of experience and education and I, I, dare I say practice with my own kids, um, you, you just find a better center line, or at least I am with my, my grandkids. And that kind of information and the mentorship, gosh, it matters so much. When Truett comes into my facility, which he does three, four times a week, then he comes to our house, you know, we're, we're over there. He's eating cliff bars. He loves granola bars, uh, fruit. I mean, he just, this is what he is around. These are the options that are presented to him. And so that's what he does. It's the, and then when he's old enough to understand the information, 
which he kind of gets that now at his level. This is what we eat. This is what's good for you. Like this, you know, kind of thing. And here's a treat. Of course, he still loves cookies and everything else, but he just knows he's taught at this age, even that these are foods that are indulgent and we only do those sometimes. That's not the rule. Those are campaigns that can be driven from the top down. Community programs. I love this one. Like, like we did with our bodybuilding contest, private and public efforts, youth-centered programs and organizations, community evaluation tools, meaning can we really assess, is this working? Uh, improved access to supermarkets and farmers markets, community gardens, identifying underserved areas. Uh, you know, I think I've talked about this a lot today, just the fact that it's not a level playing field. Some people don't have access to the same food socioeconomically, geographically, food deserts, those kind of things. It takes, gosh, I mean, even... Even just one person, I, I don't want to get into stories of, you know, from Rosa Parks on with, with social change, but one person who can dictate and direct a city council, a county council, getting the attention of a mayor, um, you know, as we had the funding, we, we still, Evansville gets a lot of funding because we have some pretty poor neighborhoods and so forth. And to say, okay, I want to be on that committee. I want to, I want to have a play in what we do with those resources like get involved, do some of those things, show people around you that change can be created. Uh, built environment. Oh man, I love this one too. We, Evansville hired this guy who was an urban developer. He was actually an engineer. I should have looked up his name. He was he was an he was an engineer who was an Olympic speedwalker, had gold medals. He ended up being an engineer for New Balance. He was from Boston, and. Um, because he's into fitness and walking and movement, he took his engineering skills and his passion, became this city planning consultant. And we hired him in our city to come in and say, just assess the whole city. What would you do differently to make us a physically better place? And he went around for like a week or two and videotaped roads and sidewalks and things like that and talked about how our entire cities are developed completely antithetically for health and mobility and physical activity. For example, you, you go to strip malls and like super centers and there's the, the building way, way, way in the back. And there's this huge sea of parking lot in the front between stores and buildings. And then there's no sidewalk or overpass for pedestrians to walk. I mean, have you seen people like in, in an urban environment trying to cross four or six lanes of traffic on foot between green lights just trying to sprint across there to go to CVS or Walmart. I mean, you're taking your life in your own hands. You go to China, you go to Europe. They're totally the opposite. Parking is in the back. Stores are up in the front. It's accessible. When I was in Europe, I was shocked. You could drive miles out of a city and there are these big sidewalks. I'm like, what? There's sidewalks just right by a cornfield. Well, they want people to be able to walk, ride their bikes, even out in those rural communities and, and be mobile. Uh, there were physical spaces for people to meet outside. In Krakow, by the, the river, this massive river bank where you know people would just be out there playing Frisbee, walking their dogs, jogging with strollers, reading books outside. Uh, at different times, like lunchtime and dinner time, Rhinex Square, this massive public place where people would meet and talk and hang out. I, you can't find that in United States cities. We just create these concrete barriers to that. S some are some are developing it differently now. 
Uh, we even have, not, not in our city, I, I, you can barely find a blade of grass downtown. And our river goes right up to the road. You know, you, here's a little tiny little auditorium kind of space. And then they've even talked about moving that road to create some of this green space for reasons like this. But you just never seem to get it done. But these things also matter because if you get a more mobile society where people can walk and, and congregate and do physical things just in terms of normal mobility, it really helps. So healthcare, final couple here, uh, pediatricians, physicians, nurses should engage in prevention. Ta-da! That's what the AAP is doing this for. Uh, we have to be able to track these relevant biomarkers with some meaning, you know, even in kids, you know, hey, little Susie, here's your BMI and here's this and you know, here's what your blood sugar is this year compared to last year. And and then again, have that safe space and that counseling and just have that prevention. So again, they were talking about this 20 years ago. Finally, it's happening. I hope it's at least happening as a position. Um, training and certification agencies should require obesity, prevention, knowledge, and skills uh, in all levels of allied health and medicine. That'd be great. Again, treat it like you would anything else. You know, this is something that needs to be addressed. Uh, and here's the big one, of course, insurers and accrediting agencies have to be ready for this. They have to incentivize change, but they also have to be willing to make that change. W one of my greatest examples is when we were looking at clean energy as a society, solar, wind, everything else, who were the biggest people fighting it? The fossil fuel industries. They make hundreds of billions of dollars in profit in oil and gas. They were trying to block all of these other cleaner alternatives. What idiots? What idiots? They already have the infrastructure. They have the capital. They have the profit. They have the labor force. Why would you not want to be the ones doing that and being on the front end of that change? Do you remember a company named Kodak created film? Guess who's bankrupt now? But guess who developed the technology for digital camera, digital imagery? Kodak did. They developed digital photography, but they said, man, we are making way too much money on film. Somebody needs to go bury this shit. Like, don't tell anybody about this technology because we're making our money on film. Could have led the industry. Could have led it. Instead, they're bankrupt. Netflix came to Blockbuster Video with an idea. Hey, guys, you know, you got these cool stores. People come in here and rent DVDs, CDs now, DVD, yeah, DVDs. Why don't, why don't you send them in the mail? We got this cool idea. Where's Netflix today? Where's Blockbuster today? The entire insurance agencies or insurance infrastructure should be the ones driving changes like this. They should be paying money hand over fist to fund these kinds of things so they don't have all of the liability after the fact. If they would just see that, and just like this committee is saying that they, they need to incentivize their insured uh, clients, I think the government needs to incentivize the insurers to start being on the front end of some of this funding. It will only pay them themselves back, or they're gonna find that they're, they're just unnecessary. Okay, schools, um, I'm going to skip through these two or just breeze through them. I've seen some great schools do this. Private schools, um, some school districts that just have a lot of parental activists 
uh, and they're, they've created their own school gardens and, and their own sourcing of higher quality food makes all the difference in the world. Uh, extend meal funding at high-risk schools. We know kids who go in and get breakfast there now and after-school snacks because they can't get high-quality food at home. Um, you're saving lives. And again, you're spending a little money in prevention and, and you're, you're saving money on the backside. Uh, expanding physical education opportunities, mandatory physical activity. You, we have to, you have to get kids moving. Some of the first things that are cut in schools nowadays, of course, are physical education you don't take it for, you know, very seriously. I guess, I guess I still do probably in uh, grade school, like recess. We've got to let kids go out there and move and blow off a little steam. Very, very important. So ex expanding clubs and sports and intramural things after school, enhancing school health curricula, you know, all those things are important. And just like we're talking about creating a, a more educated, active healthcare force, you know, doing that in schools with health staff, not just your health teacher, not just your 10th grade health teacher, but but having just like, if, you know, when I was on the football team and basketball team, you had your yearly physical, like you had to go to the, the, the school doctor and get your physical to see if you were okay to play that sport. Well, you could use some of those resources to have another layer of information and assessment so you're not just relying on pediatricians, you know, that's, that could be a really good thing. And then finally home parents, all the things parents can do. Uh, I went through this a lot already. I'm not going to redo it, but the role of the government or these agencies has to be to give parents this information, to normalize the fact that you as parents have to consider this. Whenever I talk to parents, and I, I just had a client who has a five-year-old son, and we were talking about this this week locally, and uh, she reminded me, "Hey, you remember last year you told me that with my my son, um, you know, even though he's a son, you know, even though he's a child, he's not an adult. Like he still has a sense of need for autonomy. And if I just say do this, don't do that, you know, it, it doesn't go well. So kids want options. You know, hey, little Johnny, would you like an apple or a banana?" Would you like carrots with this meal or would you like green beans? You know, and, and all of a sudden you're giving them the autonomy to make these choices instead of just dictating things. She said, wow, what a difference. I, I've used that in so many other areas of his life. That's just me, a nutrition coach, health scientist, whatever you want to call me, working with one client in my town. We need to empower all kinds of people with this kind of education and make sure that parents through PSAs, through the pediatricians, through their family doctors, just say, hey, here's a little class or a brochure. Have you talked to your child about this? Here's a little book or a video you could give your child. Here's here's a way you could engage them in a family discussion. Have you considered doing this for meal preps and so forth with your kids? We just can't expect everybody at every strata of society to know those things. And even sometimes just to be encouraged and reminded, again, helps that normalization process. So, all right, guys, let's wrap this up. Um, again, I, I just went into Google Scholar, PubMed, Plus One, and I started doing like psychological impact of childhood obesity, sociological impact of childhood obesity. Just take a second and scan some of these studies. These are just the names of studies which tell the tale um, you know, the emotional impact of obesity on children, the unhappy obese child in the International Journal of Obesity, 
depression, cortisol, reactivity, and obesity in childhood and adolescence. The life course of severe obesity, does childhood overweight matter? I mean, you know the answer to these without even reading the studies, but just to know how much this impacts every single child from the time they start having any social interaction to the time they are now self-isolating and layering themselves in even more pathological coping mechanisms and ill health, we can prevent a lot of that, a lot of that. So I, I apologize, guys. I know we ran right up here to the hour. I'm going to stop this, but you guys stay on. I'm going to stop the recording so that those people who want to watch this later don't have to hear us. But um, if you guys want to uh, hang in here for seconds and and chat or have any questions, I'd love to uh, to stick around.